Hi everyone, welcome to another week of ES46560 Race Class Empire the Olympics. I'm Dr. Brittany Cox, and this week we're talking about the commercialization of the Olympics and thinking about what the corporate Olympics means. And I don't know if any of you have been watching The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan, but the coverage in the 1992 Barcelona Summer Games is a really fascinating case study in how the commercialization of the games really caused this tension and conflict once professional athletes like a Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley get involved in the games. But first, I want to go back to the Boykoff chapter, Commercialization of the Olympics, and think about what's happening in the 70s. So before we went through surveillance and terrorism and thinking about the 1972 Olympics and the legacy of Munich, but today if we think about what happened after 1972 and the 1976 Winter and Summer Games, there's a bit of resistance um, in terms of how commercialized the Olympics have become and how expensive they've become, as we talked about before. Thinking about the security costs, thinking about other costs that are associated with hosting the games. And so in 1976, there were actually, before those games, activists in Colorado, Denver had been awarded the games, got voters to vote against funding the games. And the games, the winter games were moved to Austria. And so they really felt like, even in an op-ed, spending Olympic money on more tangible notions of goodwill, the Olympism hopes and dreams that we've discussed all through this term, weren't really sitting in for Denver voters that were saying, you know, there's a lot of other things we could do with that money. There's stuff we could do locally for our own cities, um, things we could do for the country, things we could do for the world with that money, as opposed to hosting these games. The Denver Organizing Committee was accused of a lack of transparency and not taking citizen input very seriously and under advisement. And this is really a moment where the citizens in Denver were not assuming this is the only way the Olympics have to be. Given that this Denver Organizing Committee hadn't even met with city council, there was no even perception or even posturing that they would be thinking about the citizens, what the city might want in that in that stance, right? Meanwhile, the 1976 Summer Games in Montreal had a few budgetary concerns of their own. The original figures for hosting the games, they told citizens, would be $125 million, which was later boosted to $310 million, $583 million. And the total cost of the 1976 Summer Games actually ended up being $1.5 billion, at the time the most expensive Olympic Games. And this commercialism, as Boykoff is pointing out, really went on the incline starting in Montreal in 1976. But it was funny how it was postured, as we talked about before, that amateurism and over-commercialization of the Games, Pierre de Coubertin, Avery Brundage, concerned that these were the things that would ruin the Olympics as we know them, or even cause their ultimate demise. But this perception of commercialism didn't go against the quote-unquote spirit of the Olympics because, quote, the games were a competitive challenge not only for athletes, but for a vast supporting infrastructure of equipment, materials, and supplies, end quote. And that's on page 125. So the idea of we're no longer just having athletes compete, but now it's about brands competing. It's about countries competing to get a bid, which we'll definitely talk about in a second, and thinking about what that means in terms of this overall sense of camaraderie and competition has now moved over to the corporate. Now, fast forward to 1980, 
We have in the Winter Olympics the Miracle on Ice, this historic win U.S. beats the Soviet Union at their own game, hockey, that they're supposed to dominate. And there's also this moment where President Jimmy Carter threatens to pull the tax-exempt status and federal funding from the U.S. Olympic Committee if they don't go all in on the Moscow boycott. So the idea was, in 1980, Jimmy Carter, U.S. government, want to boycott the 1980 Olympics, which are going to be held in Moscow. So the Winter Olympics gives this epic U.S. victory. They want to roll out into the sunset on that and don't want to take part in the Moscow Summer Olympics, which will be held on Soviet soil. And so thinking about that, they threatened to pull the money from the U.S. Olympic Committee, which is enough to actually pull off this boycott. Now, mind you, that Winter Olympics had been in the U.S. Obviously, the Soviet Union was there. When they boycott the Moscow Olympics, 60 other countries end up joining in. But at that time, NBC had been fighting for the rights to broadcast the Olympics. Like I said before, every country individually works out a deal in terms of the broadcast rights. So the Olympics have that that localized flavor, that the mixture of the global and the local flavor um, in terms of how you view and consume the games. Now, they won the rights to broadcast. At this point, $85 million was spent by NBC for the broadcast rights to the Olympics that year, but they opted not to televise the boycotted games, in, in many ways thinking about a solidarity of a national broadcasting company, NBC, um, choosing to side with the United States instead of showing a U.S. free Olympic Games. He says, quote, The transformation of the IOC into a corporate entity was underway. And television money, more than any other factor, provided the impetus for this change, end quote. Now, even with all of the money, we said $85 million spent just by one country to broadcast the Olympics is still not enough to cover the rising costs of the games. Now, 1984 in Los Angeles is a turning point here. It's the first time the Olympics were not hosted by a city, but rather a private group that was given the ability to put on these games, like hiring a party planner, a wedding planner to, to do the games for you. But also in that, the private partners pay for renovations of existing venues and construction. So it was a games where they, Los Angeles was like, we already have these venues, we've hosted in Olympics before, you can renovate these spaces, build a couple of pools, figure out what you need to do. But in many ways, this was a new change in terms of companies and, and typically um, cities are spending Millions, and now at this point, we're at the billion mark on these games. And Los Angeles pulling out and saying, we're not going to be the ones taking on this bill, as well as taking on the responsibility. A private group, these private partners, made sure things were really optimized for what was already there. There was a ticket tax added on to pay for things like security. We talked about how expensive that was before. And we see here there's a profit of $215 million that Los Angeles makes off of these games. And I say Los Angeles very loosely because also the IOC takes their cut. The U.S. Olympic Committee takes their cut. There are other ways that $215 million doesn't go directly to the people and the city of Los Angeles. But it was enough money to do something like promote youth sports. And I don't know how many of you are from Los Angeles are familiar, but LA84 is still a very prolific organization 
that has an incredible archive of sports that hosts a lot of programs that really pushes and does reports on youth sports and really tries to maintain a presence in the city. And so there, there are these lingering things that were able to happen because for the first time in a while, there was actually a profit. There was actually money made off of the Olympics. The Olympics is also typically called the Disneyfication of the Olympics and thinking about Los Angeles' proximity to Anaheim and Disneyland and just kind of like the magic of Hollywood. And thinking about what that means in terms of once we see this new business model that Los Angeles puts forth, there's all of a sudden a new commission formed, and we'll see this as a trend over the next few weeks. Whenever something kind of prolific happens, the IOC forms a commission around it. So this is the commission for the new sources of financing, and that comes up as Los Angeles is funding um, the Olympics in a new way. So this is in 1983 when this commission is formed. And in doing so, they form a worldwide partner program. They see how Los Angeles is able to really capitalize off of using corporate sponsors to build things, to work on renovations. So it's not coming from taxpayer dollars. Rather, there's a tax that's levied in order to pay for Los Angeles Police Department um, officers to be there for security. But outside of that tax for folks that are buying tickets to go to the Olympics, for example... Corporate sponsorship is really carrying that Olympics. And so this worldwide partner program really charges brands for a little bit of that, that the sports dirt. We'll talk about that in a second, what Lawrence Winter calls sports dirt, the proximity to the Olympic rings. So the paying to use that, you see commercials where, you know, a credit card company, a sporting goods company, Tide are all kind of aligning themselves with like the the corporate magic of the Olympics, right? And so you have to pay a lot of money for that. And and you know, one of the things in thinking about in 1988 at the Calgary Winter Games, it really started to undercut this really nice kind of structure that the Los Angeles Olympics had set up. In terms of speaking between the Commission for New Sources of Financing and a host city, everyone was fine to go after their own corporate sponsors as long as there wasn't this kind of overlap, this kind of conflict of interest. And what happened in, starting in 88 was that they began undercutting local organizers' sponsorships. This compete clause that was put in is if you pick, you know, a car company, I now can't go after a car company. If you pick an ice cream company, I have to pick something else. And so what happened with that the Calgary Games is that their ability to structure their funding based off of how Los Angeles had really didn't work because IOC had already kind of put themselves on game as to what was happening. Today, it's interesting that typically when we think about the money for the Olympics and where it comes from, it used to be heavily reliant upon TV Now, instead of the majority of the money coming in being from those broadcasting rights we were talking about before, it's now 50% TV, 45% corporate sponsorships, and 5% ticket sales. I think one of the things that surprised me was how low ticket sales are in terms of if you've ever looked at how much it costs to go to an Olympic event, it's very expensive. And then thinking, and also very exclusive, right? So thinking about how um, the IOC revenue that's driven by TV has been slashed, but now corporate sponsorships matter more than ever. Barcelona has brought up the 1992 Summer Games. The city that won the games is the way that they're positioned, which is a rarity. Most of the time, the Olympics win. And then everyone else kind of comes after, like the athletes, the city are kind of afterthoughts. The IOC typically wins the Olympics. 
But Barcelona is an example of winning the Olympics in terms of a city. And part of that is they lumped in their Olympics planning with larger city planning and renovations they were already thinking about in terms of structure. They decided to make the Olympics in the service of the city rather than being in service of the games. And in this way, one of the things I, the stat I thought was so interesting, 2% of the funding for the games came from the city of Barcelona, 2%. They saw unemployment decrease after growth in the construction industry due to all the, the rebuilding that had been happening slowly over years. The housing market flourished after. And Boykoff's saying there's a unique time, place, and situation. It's a very hard model to emulate. But much of what we see when the Olympics is sold as an ideal for a host city or a potential host city is that all these things are going to happen. And what we find out is that Barcelona is actually the rarity and a really hard thing, you know, to, to really find. It's like the perfect recipe that brings them kind of this local prosperity and really like coming out of the Olympic Games better than you went in. Typically, there's a darker side of these things where, you know, cities, industries go bankrupt. You know, neighborhoods are gentrified in a way that isn't helpful, which is what we see in 1996, the next summer games in Atlanta. Atlanta tried to follow LA style and they had minimal economic costs compared to other cities in the celebration capitalism era. But it's a city that had a description as a corporate trade show in terms of all of the sponsors that they used. It became a way that it was so glaring how the games were being um, put on by all these corporate entities that it became kind of jarring. It was a really kind of, um, in many ways, not able to camouflage the various moving of money um, across various places. We see here kind of what that gentrification looks like. In-town properties told tenants to vacate or pay $3,000 a month for their apartments. Public housing is demolished. Over 9,000 homeless folks are arrested. This idea of messing with the brand of a city, the brand of the Olympics. Some of them were given one-way tickets to leave the state. And so here we see the kind of underbelly of the Olympic Games and what happens as cities try to clean up and corporatize to host the games. We see here for Atlanta, another disaster. Sport, various sporting events were held at key clan sites. Stone Mountain is this really um, infamous space for kind of the resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan, as well as like this space where there was a Confederate statue. And thinking about Stone Mountain as this really um, kind of uh, dark space to think about um, a city trying to reflect its best attributes. There was also a terrorist attack in 1996, killed one, injured hundreds, where Eric Robert Rudolph, who had kind of been this domestic terrorist um, for a while, had been bombing other spaces, really represented how the Olympic space had become a prime space for that, that kind of global eye um, for something that, that really draws people to committing a terrorist attack. So we see 1972 and then 1996 in terms of how people use the hyper-visibility of the Olympic Games and now even more visible because of those corporate sponsors to put on a, a massively tragic um, attack. We also see the beginning of big-time bribery in the bid process as we're moving to the 21st century. That 
in tandem with the other corporate arm of sustainability and corporate responsibility in terms of environmental impact, become the two big issues moving into the early 2000s. Green, he says, Boykoff says, was the new green. So, of course, the IOC develops a sport and environment commission. There's going to be a pattern here. And so it becomes the third pillar after sport and culture is this idea of sustainability. By the same time, this idea of taking sustainability seriously kind of fractures a bit when we think about the fact they're, they're publishing reports with the support of Shell, right? Um, it's really difficult for us to see that, like these oil and gas partnerships, for example, it makes them look good to have this affiliation with the Olympics as well as anything that's about sustainability or anything green, when we understand how oil and gas companies are the biggest proliferators in terms of environmental impact that's negative. Every games that that come after um, 1996 claim to be the greenest games ever. I think that's so interesting um, that he talks about. So we hear we have this this way of sustainability, and then there's also kind of the downside to that um, is this bribery, playing the long game where host cities or potential host cities start to bribe members of the IOC early on for an upcoming Olympic bid. The example Boykoff gives is Australia in an effort to secure the Sydney 2000 Olympics, start sponsoring African athletes in the hopes of getting love from IOC delegates from African countries. And so thinking about the fact that, you know, we start to see this massive corruption in 1998, um, $22,000 were given on average per IOC member, more than 60 members, um, as Japan was, was bidding for that Winter Olympics. And then we see over $3 million handed out across to individual members for the U.S. as they're looking for a bid. And so we start seeing how people are getting various trips. This is especially like it's happening in the U.S. where different delegates are getting flown to the U.S. They're getting trips. Their friends and family are getting surgeries, various business partnerships, land options, scholarships for their kids. And so this leads to a larger investigation, um, especially leading up to Salt Lake City, which is where the 2002 Winter Olympics is where we see a lot of this corruption was happening. Six members end up suspended, four resigned. Um, The Salt Lake City um, Olympic Committee organizer, um, the vice president was fired, the committee president resigned. And so Salt Lake City um, ends up with this Olympic Games in 2002, um, turns a $56 million profit, um, which most of it goes to the IOC, the USOC, and the maintenance of the venues. And then we have a formation of, following all of this corruption, an ethics commission. I told you it was going to be a heavy commission kind of day. So I want to take this time to think about what makes the Olympics so valuable to corporations, to potential host cities, that they would risk things like bribery, FBI investigations, spending millions of dollars for things like broadcast rights, for commercials. And for that, I'm going to go to the Lawrence Winter article we read this week. And think about the 1992 Olympics as a really prolific time because of the inclusion of NBA players to Team USA um, and what that meant in terms of this larger kind of corporate global sports nexus. And thinking about what it means in terms of 
marketing. How marketing conflicts. Do you represent your nation or do you represent your brand? Or can you even find kind of a happy in-between to do so? Again, hearkening back to The Last Dance because I'm kind of obsessed with it right now. And thinking about the way that they're showing how Michael Jordan knew that he didn't want to show the Reebok logo on the podium after they won the gold medal. He's in the car and he's talking about, oh, I got something for them. We get They pull up and he ends up draping the U.S. flag where it covers up the logo. And so it's this really genius stroke of, I'm going to look super patriotic, but I'm also going to be loyal to who I really represent, which is Nike. Um, and so thinking about that, Winner is looking at commercials and thinking about what the commercials that air during the Olympics mean in terms of these are very valuable, coveted spots, and very few companies have a chance to show a commercial and really brand themselves globally during the Olympic Games. He says that Olympism is an idealized premium product. He says bound up in Olympism are these virtues of amateurism, even though we're seeing you know, multi-million dollar NBA players, but it still works, right? Sportsmanship, global goodwill, and a healthy nationalism. He says, all wrapped up in this peak athleticism on display for the world. There's 12 worldwide sponsors at the time that he's writing, and it's not cheap. You know, there's all this ambush advertising that happens around Olympic venues. And kind of on the periphery, we even see this now happens on social media, hoping to get a little bit of that Olympic magic, even though they're not one of the primary kind of 12 sponsors that are represented. And so Winner introduces this idea of sports dirt to explain this. You know, dirt not in the sense of being filthy or dirty. It's like this kind of like cultural borrowing that allows one entity to adopt the logics of another. So if there are these logics of Olympism in terms of global goodwill, sportsmanship, healthy nationalism, playing together, peak athleticism, doing our best, representing the country, there's a way that brands want to get a little bit of that to rub off on them. So think about a little dirt rubbing off. They just want a little bit, a little bit in their in their sphere. And so these ideals of sport map onto marketing in a particular way. And the example he gives that I really hadn't thought about before is like beer commercials. There's, you know, beer commercials are, and I'll take it even further, like Mountain Dew ads, right? Whenever someone is drinking Mountain Dew on a basketball court, it's in many ways infusing like sugary soda drinks with athleticism or beer commercials are infusing alcohol consumption with athleticism. These like Michelob light commercials where it's like, three carbs you know it's like the guy that's like looking like he's training for a triathlon or something but he's drinking with his friends and it's Michelob it's idea like, like athletes drink Michelob or you know your favorite athlete drinks Mountain Dew it's like the idea the logic of like no one has ever been on a basketball court and craved a Mountain Dew um, and yet these com- commercials continue to get produced right and so this dirt even when it doesn't quite seem to align with the ideas of athleticism or good health or or even good patriotism, it's still the dirt clings enough to give you a little authenticity, maybe a little more shine than you would get otherwise. So then he introduces the idea of, you know, there's sport dirt, which is like any sport. There's Olympic dirt, which is kind of this rarefied. This only happens every two years between winter and summer. And there's dream team dirt that he's pulling from with the 1992 Olympics and that Team USA basketball team, the men's basketball team that 
is really for the first time comprised of current NBA players where we get Sport Olympic and this particular Team USA. He breaks down these 11 commercials in terms of whether or not they have like active engagement in sport, implied fan activity, or this kind of idealized, like broader narrative of sport and success. He finds a lot of them have some kind of mixture. And these are commercials that ran during USA basketball games. He then breaks it down into thinking about nationalistic sports dirt, right, representing the nation. Youth sports dream dirt, I want to be like Mike, right? And then sports hero dirt, like what makes our favorite sports heroes so heroic? If, if it's their journey, if it's, you know, triumph over adversity. And so really what I want to think about is how, you know, like the champion ad he brings up ties their actual brand to Team USA. Um, the way they might use humor, the way that the journey is sold to us. Being like Mike, longing for America to send their best, competing with other, you know, potential rivals on the field. This idea of like the Visa commercial, you know, Visa bosses up on on Amex with this this idea of like basketball block. The idea of like your Amex card will get rejected at the Olympics, but Visa is accepted everywhere. I've posted a couple of commercials that are more current. And I invite you to think about these the way that, that winners reading these, this nationalistic sports dirt, youth sports dream dirt, and the sports hero dirt, to think about what like a commercial with Michael Phelps or Simone Biles might also reinforce in terms of the nationalistic, the youth aspiration to sport, or the heroic sports figure. Like Winner, I really encourage that you think about how He's grappling with issues of race, gender, and sexuality as he's analyzing these ads and thinking about the ways they're selling us this idea of a multicultural but nationalistic society where everyone is included, right, visually, everyone is seen of all nation, of, of all races, of all genders are seen, um, but they are all representing the nation. Winner writes, quote, in a society where heroes are decidedly hard to find, a wide range of power has been fabricated and granted to Sportster, end quote. And that's on page 45. That's all I have for this week. The other thing, there's not a podcast to go with the Icarus screening. I didn't want to wear you down with watching a documentary and having to listen to me talk about it. Normally, we're just watching class together. Um, but make sure you watch that, and then we'll talk more next week. Uh, we'll get into some nitty-gritty on the Olympic body. Have a good one. Oh, 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 o